When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 8 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's weekly awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I am so pleased to be joined on this episode by one of my favorite young actresses, uh, somebody who really won me over two years ago when she was so great in the movie Short Term 12, and who this year is finally getting some appreciation from the awards community uh, for an equally great performance in the movie Room, in which she plays a young woman who has been locked in a room by a kidnapper who uh, has raped her and left her with a young child who she cares for under these terrible circumstances, and she's just unbelievable. The film won the Audience Award at the Toronto Film Festival. I saw it at Telluride before that, and I can tell you that there are a few movies, if any, this year that are going to be as moving for people as this one is, and I am really excited to get to that conversation. But first, as we do every week, let's look back at what's happened since the last episode, uh, at least in the awards conversation. I am right now speaking to you from the Savannah Film Festival down south, where I moderated a panel with nine documentary filmmakers representing eight of the year's top documentaries. We'll have that video on the Hollywood Reporter website shortly, but uh, that was terrific. Also here, uh, sat down for upcoming episodes of this podcast with Olivia Wilde and Saoirse Ronan, uh, which I think you will really enjoy when we get to posting those. And this evening I'll be speaking with Tab Hunter, the great Hollywood legend who is the subject of a documentary of his own called Tab Hunter Confidential about his experience as a gay man during the very closeted period of the golden age of Hollywood. Otherwise, there's bits and pieces of things coming out this week, nothing major, but Academy announced their documentary shorts shortlist of 10 films that will be competing for five slots at the Oscars. Gwyneth Paltrow hosted a luncheon for Blythe Danner several days ago, her mother, and this was a nice opportunity to remind people about the Blythe Danner performance in I'll See You in My Dreams, which is a little indie that came out in the first half of the year was later promoted as the first screener to go out to voters and was also recognized this week with a Gotham nomination for Danner. So perhaps she will be the person to emerge and join the four presumptive nominees, very much uh, you know, an asterisk. We'll see what happens. But the presumption is that Brie Larson, Saoirse Ronan, Kate Blanchett, and probably Jennifer Lawrence will have spots in the Best Actress category. And then right now I have Charlotte Rampling, who's been who's excellent in 45 years, but that's a small movie that needs to find an audience. And right now, Blythe Danner is getting more heat. So perhaps that slot will go to her. There's other senior women who have also done great work and might threaten Blythe for that spot. If you look at Lily Tomlin in Grandma or Maggie Smith in Lady in the Van or Helen Mirren in the uh, in A Woman in Gold, uh, those are all possibilities as well. But great news this week for Blythe, all these things happening together. Another older woman who's doing fine work this year in in much less screen time is Jane Fonda, who was tapped for the Hollywood Supporting Actress Award at the upcoming Hollywood Film Awards. That news was announced alongside the news that Will Smith for Concussion will be the Hollywood Actor of the Year recipient, meaning those are the Lead Actor and Supporting Actress uh, Award recipients from that group, the first to have an award ceremony of the season. Fonda, by the way, getting nominated or, or rather being recognized for youth. And then the news came today that The Hateful Eight, a movie that we haven't seen, but apparently the Hollywood Film Awards 
uh, selection committee has seen, that film will be recognized with the Hollywood Ensemble Award for a cast that includes Kurt Russell, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Madsen, Jennifer Jason Lee, Bruce Dern, and on and on and on, Channing Tatum even. So that's something to look for. That, that ceremony is coming up next Sunday in Los Angeles. But as far as the box office this past weekend, The Martian clawed its way back to first place. It had fallen out last weekend after two weeks at the two weekends at the top, now back at the top, and followed in third place by Bridge of Spies, which is doing very well for a movie that primarily appeals to older moviegoers. And so that continues to hold steady and strong. I wish the same could be said for Steve Jobs, which opened well in very limited release last weekend, but is not on an upward trajectory at this time. Did get some good news this week in the in the form of winning at the Key Art Awards, but that does not make money or awards any more likely. And so that movie and Suffragette, which also performed Disappointingly, despite having the, the weekend's top per theater average, those two are are uh, a little wounded after this weekend or after last weekend. But focusing on the positive, a movie that has done quite well in limited platforming release room, as we've mentioned, is the Brie Larson movie that we're here to talk about, along with the other highlights of a, of a very exciting, promising young career. And Brie Larson as we mentioned, might be competing in the Best Actress category with Jennifer Lawrence, who's really the young star to whom she's been likened more than any other, both very talented, very beautiful, very charismatic, and very relatable, which seems to be the the wave of the future. People don't want their movie stars to be unattainable in the way they used to be. They want them to be relatable. And Brie Larson, both on screen and off, has sort of... uh, uh, I guess I would say, rather than saying made that her persona, I think that is her persona in the same way that Jennifer Lawrence, that's just the way they are and and it's tailor-made for the present time. So we're going to get into a lot of stuff with Brie Larson. I think it's a really fun conversation with a lovely person who, at the moment, is the person to beat in the Best Actress race unless Jennifer Lawrence really brings it again and the Academy is willing to give her a second Oscar in a matter of just four years. Uh, It's... Brie Larson's to lose at the moment, and and that's exciting. So let's let's go to that conversation. Well, good to see you again. Thank you for good coming in. Good to see in. you, too. I just would like everyone out there to know that I did put makeup on for this, <laughs> and I did check my teeth well. before realizing that this was a podcast. So if you're visualizing me right now, imagine that I've got... Looking good. Just as, yeah, yeah, perfect complexion, no, no cilantro, my teeth ready to go. Well, uh, we appreciate it because... Uh, well, this will not air this after, right after the opening weekend. It is opening weekend, so there's a lot going on. And um, and you're sort of like the the talk of the town at the moment. I don't know if you fully realize this, but I was at a I was with Jane Fonda yesterday, and I said to Jane Fonda, "What is uh, who's the young actress today that most reminds you of yourself?" And the first name that came out of her mouth was Jennifer was... Lawrence. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and then the second one no, was Emma Stone. No, no. And then the th- okay, Brie Larson. So I don't know if no you've ever way. met Jane Fonda, but that's I quite have. a compliment. She actually invited me over to her house for a dance party, and I couldn't <laughs> go, and it's one of the big regrets of my life. Well, I've heard they're very good from Elizabeth Banks and uh, Diane Lane, so you got to get a rain check on that. Uh, definitely. That's, that's, good. that's incredible. That makes me a little emotional, actually. <laughs> well, it's, it's definitely a compliment, a high compliment, and makes me wonder just, you know, before we even get very much into Room, um, when did you when did you first realize that you wanted to be or that you were an actor? When did this start? Oh, an actor. Yes. Well, apparently, I told my mom at six that I wanted to be an actor. I, my mom was doing the dishes, and I came up to her and said, "Oh, mom, I know what my dharma is. I'm supposed to be an actor." You knew the word dharma. Yeah, all of it's weird. Wow. <laughs> all of it's really weird, and I was also so painfully shy as a kid. I mean, I've been shy for pretty much my whole life, but when I was younger, it was just painful, brutal. And so my mom at first just assumed I was repeating something that I saw on TV or or overheard somebody say. But when I was just so adamant about it and just kept pestering her, she's like, all right, you know, I'll see what, how this is going to go. But she was pretty sure that it was going to be, you know, one class and I was going right. to end up in tears or... <laughs> Even if it did get to the point where I was on a stage, it was going to end in tears. It wasn't going to end well, was her initial thought. But 
um, over the course of a year, and I was taking private lessons once a week, mm-hmm. I went from being this kid who couldn't make eye contact to suddenly when I was on stage doing multiple page monologues and performing for people, but then once again, couldn't make eye contact off stage. It was just this weird dichotomy, but it became a way at a really young age for me to communicate. For some reason, being on a stage in front of a lot of people didn't seem as intimidating as a one-on-one conversation. Well, you know, we're going to get into this in a little bit more detail, uh, hopefully in a, in a while. But basically, was this the reason why you and your mom, uh, and I don't know if, it, if you have siblings, but that you moved from Sacramento, I think, to L.A.? Was this was, was acting the motivating uh, reason? Yeah. So yeah. by the time I was seven, I had started doing like little auditions. And maybe on weekends and stuff, my mom would drive me to San Francisco to do audition for commercials or the the you know every so often it was a Robin Williams movie because I don't know if he if he always lived there but at least he lived there while I was first starting out and mm-hmm. so everything was cast out of San Francisco so I auditioned to play his daughter about five times <laughs> <laughs> um, but then uh, one big moment was actually booking a modeling job I think this is one of the only modeling jobs I got was at seven and it was wow. to be in a shell um like the gas station shell (laughs) brochure um for cpr what to do if you got in a car crash and someone's unconscious and so i played i played a kid that was unconscious in the backseat of a of a car accident and my mom got cast as my mother it's the only job (laughs) in the entertainment industry she ever got where (laughs) she's like you know trying to listen to see if i'm breathing and then resuscitates me over the course of a few photo panels and so we each got like two grand for that and it was pretty pretty good for a day's work and And i just basically got to sleep the whole day and i got paid (laughs) for it yeah it was in all the gas stations for like years wow that was your that was your calling that was my big thing and so because uh we had this money um, my mom said that we could use that as our investment to try it out in LA and and so we were gonna go to drive to Los Angeles and just stay for like three weeks for pilot season mm-hmm. um, with another girl that I had um, wanted to try it out as well who was in my hip-hop class named mm-hmm. Jazzy <laughs> and uh, we all drove out together um, but very quickly they went back Mm -hmm. they went back to sacramento and we moved into an even smaller apartment we had a one bedroom for like five of us but then when they left when jazzy and her mom left we were in a studio apartment where the bed came out of the wall wow 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 and again we'll come back to that for uh reasons yeah we'll wrap it up we'll wrap it around i see where you're going (laughs) here we'll go down this pathway but first i need you to help me with a potential movie trivia item that i think is really good which is that is it true that your real name uh, and your first language, both French? Yeah. I mean, it was French was my first language up until, I mean, first or second grade. And then I could kind of, I could understand it, but English became more mm-hmm. prominent. And then now I I know very little. Every so often I have these moments of brilliance <laughs> where I've back. like done press in Paris and suddenly I like can hear things and I'm right. like, oh, I know what that is. Um, but for the most part, it's just this like embarrassing thing that I think I can do that I really can't. <laughs> the last time I was in Paris, I thought it was really cool going and ordering a cappuccino every day. And I would order it in French. And by the fourth day, I really thought that I had this guy by the fourth day. He was like, ma'am, I know that you're American. You can just say you want a cappuccino. <laughs> That's great. And so where did Larson come from? Larson was also a family name. It was my, I think it was my great grandmother's last name. Either my great-grandmothers are my great-great-grandmothers, mm-hmm. and she immigrated from Sweden mm-hmm. to Utah. And um, I wanted to change it because it, to say my French name in, in American speak, it was Brian de Saulniers, and it always bothered me because I was a girl. And at that age, at seven, I was just like, it was atrocious. It was like <laughs> the biggest flaw of my life was that my parents, you know, that my name would be considered Brian on first meeting me. And now I think it'd be pretty cool to be Brian, Brian as a girl. But at the time, I just wanted to wear dresses right. that twirled, and so it was really painful. So I wanted to go by Brie, right. and I wanted to change my last name. And um, my mom sort of presented to me a couple different options that mm-hmm. were family names. 
And I loved Larson because I had a, an American girl doll, and her name was Kirsten Larson. There you go. And so I, of course, chose Larson because it meant that the doll could be in the family. <laughs> <clears throat> so early on, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you were almost on the Selena Gomez track, right? You did a Disney movie. You, ha- you, were, you were very into singing and quite successful with it. Um, what was that? Uh, is that at any time what you thought – you know, was going to be the the long term uh, trajectory, or or um, you know, how did how did you how did, did I have that... dreams of more or yeah. different? <laughs> um, it was not what I wanted to do. It's when I did I did a Disney Channel movie when I was like eleven, and I got to play a drag car racer, and I got to learn actually how to drive it, and so it was rad. I thought it was super, super cool. But then when it came time for them to be like, we also do sitcoms and we'd love for you to do that. I never wanted to do it. I always sort of never auditioned and didn't gravitate towards it just because simply I didn't think it was funny. I was always like, this isn't good material. This isn't what I believe in. It's like, I just found it to be too cartoony for me. So I never really naturally, even at a young age, never really wanted to go down that path. And, and the music stuff was a very weird it's a part of my life that I hardly even recognize as part of my path. It's like this weird multiverse where I like jumped over here for a second and did this. I don't even know how it happened. I just became obsessed with guitar and started playing guitar when I was like 12 and I was on a sitcom and it was, I mean, it really was like a Disney Channel movie. Where I was like playing guitar in my dressing room and we had a musical guest on the show and her manager overheard me and was like, here's my card. I think you really got something right. there. And um, my mom was like, well, explore it. Maybe yeah. this is something that was would be fun for you to do. And uh, met with the management company and I don't know how big they really were, but to me at 12, it was like, you know, huge conference tables and they represented heart and they represented you know the go-go's right. and I was like whoa this is crazy and so they hooked me up with these producers who were also sort of like why is this 12 year old in my office like what is the purpose of this and they gave me a, a like just music to write to mm-hmm. and I took it over the weekend and I wrote a song because at the time I was um, going through the testing process for the Peter Pan remake mm-hmm. and I didn't get it and I was really devastated about it and so I my way of dealing with it was I wrote a song called Invisible Girl about not being no, not feeling noticed and it, it clicked right people like <laughs> and it. it ended up getting me a record deal and it ended up getting a rotation on Kiss and uh, Tommy <laughs> Mottola signed me without ever meeting me and it just wow. really snowballed into this very bizarre thing for a couple of years that was just such an innocent step that I took that kind of blossomed into this other thing and then after a couple years I realized that it was you had to play a character and I liked it because it was a chance for me to be myself and when I realized that it wasn't really Mm -hmm. that it was just another mask to put on I was like I don't feel comfortable Mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable acting like this is me I was like, I feel like maybe if I had a pop star name or something, another name from my fake name, <laughs> right, right. then then it would have been okay. But I just didn't feel it didn't feel right to me. So that's all in the past. There's not going to be another uh, hit record coming out with Brie Larson or I some mean, alter Never ego. say never. never. I still write music yeah. all the time, and it comes from the same place as mm-hmm. that twelve year old, where it's it's a way for me to cope. It's a way for me to understand. Mm-hmm. I have little like almost jingles that I write for myself. Because one of the things about life that I find so frustrating is that you have to sometimes relearn the same lesson like five times. And so instead of going through that process again, I have jingles for certain things. I'm like, oh, I know this one. I don't have to go down this path again. But who knows? Well, one of the things that you said when we spoke a couple of, couple of evenings ago was that you, until the last few years, you were not – you said you weren't like regularly working in the way that we now – you know, it looks like it's – Looks like you would have, you know, somebody on the outside might imagine it's just been the steady trajectory to where things are now. But um, maybe you can talk about those leaner years and, in fact, confirm or, or rebut the fact. Like I read, I think, in another interview, you, you did that Juno and 13 and some of these other movies that were looking for somebody your age, you went out for, you maybe got close and it didn't happen. And how did you take rejection? Was it something that made you feel like, you know, is this worth it, or did you just kind of see the the long, the long, um, I guess the long term uh, all mm. along? No, I didn't take the rejection well. No, ever. 
No. <laughs> no, my manager's behind me, and I can hear her snickering <laughs> of all the times I called her. I quit. I'm out of this. Get me out of here. I'm going back to college. I'm going to train dolphins. This is bullshit. <laughs> I had a very difficult time with it because uh, there's nothing quantifiable about acting. It doesn't – it's not anything that we can really talk about in concrete terms. So I would always become very frustrated by how hard it was to get further or to improve in something that's abstract. It's not like being a runner where it's about being the fastest and you just keep timing yourself and the numbers start to go down and you know you're headed in the right direction and you can tweak your diet and you can tweak your shoes or whatever. With acting, it's just this unquantifiable and it's just feelings. It's it's me connecting to material and feeling things and it being based upon something that I read or life experience. And then it's that perfectly meeting a director and a, a budget that perfectly suits me in that moment. I mean, when you really want to get down to the eccentricities of it, it seems impossible. Mm-hmm. And so because I have – I do have a realistic mind – I have a huge imagination, but I'm also quite realistic. It was always like, well, the older I got, I was like, this just is never going to happen. There's just no way that this is even possible. I don't know how anybody ever gets any job, let alone two, Mm -hmm. let alone a career. Um, And then when you, all of your formative years, we all go through many stages of awkwardness. Mm -hmm. Um, I could be in it right now, and you never know. (laughs) But it's all all while you're trying to find yourself and deal with your own stuff, you then have to deal with this outside perception that is not personal but feels like it. So when you don't get something because you're too tall or because your eyes are brown um, or because your face looks too modern, these these things that I would be told as to why it wouldn't go my way is like, what can you really do? There's nothing. And so you feel a sense of helplessness Mm -hmm. and you also immediately want to go, but, 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 but I can wear contacts or I can dye my hair or I can slouch or I can do this. And I felt myself for so many years feeling this heaviness about who I was and concerned so much about that, concerned about what that perception was when every day you're going in and people are kind of scanning you up and down and, and seeing where you're at. It's terrifying. Right. But there was this really interesting turning point when I was about 17 where I remembered really hitting a low point where I just became sick of caring so much about what I was perceived as. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, why, why am I on this side of the table? Why aren't I on the other side of the table? And I thought, well, just because they decided they decided that they get to be the one to choose, and I decided that I'm the one that's going to be submissive and go, please hire me. And truly, once my mindset changed where I went, you're right, I don't have blue eyes. My eyes are brown, and I'm somewhere between 5'8 and 5'9, and I'm really tall when I have heels on, and uh, this is what my face looks like. And and I'm not so sure if if this is going to be the right fit if you can't accept me for that. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, I started working because it wasn't me going in, going, having this sort of like reeking of, please don't hurt me. Suddenly, I was like, you can't. So we can have a conversation that goes longer, or I'll have a conversation with someone else. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Do you remember what? So, what was the first project after that? Would would that have been around the United States, uh, around the time of uh, United States of Tara? Yeah, sort of. But Tara's a little complicated because I had tested for it and didn't get it. Really? So that was another big moment of feeling like this was – I felt like I was the only person who could play that part. Mm-hmm. I felt it was, like, made for me. And when it didn't happen, it was another of these moments where you never know if this is a dream or a delusion. And just sort of for the sake of listeners who don't know, this is this was a show based on the idea – of on an, on an idea by Steven Spielberg, created by Diablo Cody right after Juno. Showrunners included Jill Soloway. Starring Tony Collette, I mean, this was this was obviously a very big thing, so that must have been pretty uh, upsetting to not get it. It was really devastating, yeah. and it just felt like everything was leading up. It's one of those things you're like, oh, this is the penultimate moment, mm-hmm. and it wasn't. It was a huge letdown, mm-hmm. and it took however long it takes, months, a couple months for them to shoot the pilot, decide that they wanted to recast, and then... They had me come back in and basically audition all over again. It wasn't like they were like, we made a mistake. Here's your part. They were like, we made a mistake, I guess. Probably, <laughs> maybe you, but why don't you come in and audition right. again? And so I had to go through it all over again, but with 
with this perspective of like I remembered being in the test and doing it and it was the same sides that I had done for months and I had hit this sort of point where I was like you know I don't think this is gonna work and then of course I got the call that I got and I was like it worked (laughs) there's always this very interesting dichotomy to the industry that it it it's not always so much about wanting it so hard that you blindly like just demolish everything in its path to get it. Mm-hmm. It's really never works that way. You have to have this sort of gentleness, I think, and this ease about it where you feel very comfortable either way because that's when you can really work from a place of clarity and from a place of honesty and not from a place of needing to get a job because then you won. Mm-hmm. Well, from that three-year run of Tara, um, seems like during and then certainly after it, things really began to pick up. And, um, you know, Scott Pilgrim, uh, 21 Jump Street, Rampart, this was either during or right after it, right? But to me, uh, and while those are all great, the one that when I saw it, I was like, Jesus, I've never seen like, uh, I've never appreciated this person before fully was Short Term 12. And I have to ask, you know, did you see it as sort of the first great role, the role that you could really run with, uh, for movies at least? Well, it was my first lead. Mm -hmm. So it was a real awakening for me because being the lead of something, I had a conflicted relationship with because as I started getting older, I started questioning the role of the actor as this, as a face. And I felt very uncomfortable with it. Mm -hmm. And I always wondered how you could continue to be mysterious and and create these dynamic characters the more people got to know you and, and so I thought well I'll just play these sidekick roles or supporting role for as long as I can because mm-hmm. it's easier to just get sort of lost and, and then the pressure's not on you but when short term 12 came along it was it was about a woman who was struggling with herself and with being in a powerful leadership position and was constantly going why am I being the leader I'm a flawed human being and her daily drive was to try and put everything she possibly can into these kids and so it became the perfect way for me to explore my own my own questions about being a leader and um and it also gave me the ability for this role to not be about myself it wasn't about Grace's struggle you're, you're watching her not try as hard as she possibly can not to process what's happening to mm-hmm. her personally because she just wants to keep throwing it into something else. And so it was um, it was a, the, the most perfect timing. Well, it's honestly, I think of the last five, ten years, I don't think there's a better movie. And I think what's amazing is that when for people that haven't seen it, which I was frustrated on your behalf that more people didn't see it in real time because it, to me that should have been – an Oscar nomination or whatever, at least. But um, it's amazing how many great young actors came out of that movie. Or obviously they'd done other things, but just to rehash quickly, and I know many of these people, I, I think, became good friends of yours in the process, but John Gallagher Jr., uh, Rami Malek, Keith Stanfield, Caitlin Deaver, it's unbelievable. This was the beginning for, for, or at least the catapult for them. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a lot of ways for you, because people were, cat- they spent, you know, maybe they didn't catch up with it immediately, but the effects of that movie are still being felt, right, as people discover. Totally, yeah. yeah. Well, because it it was a small movie, it was this, like, it was, like, the indie band that was, like, yours, and then now it's on Netflix, and now right. it's, like, it's way more accessible. Your favorite band is playing right. stadiums. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's had this very, very long echo. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, Which people is beautiful. People need to go see it. It's unbelievable. And, and just that was in theaters, for the record, at the same time as Spectacular Now, right? Yeah. And so that was probably started to feel things picking up right around uh, I would imagine around then, or maybe maybe not. I mean, it was. I mean, that I think was the, a period of time because it was short term twelve, spectacular now, and I had also written and directed my first short film that also wow. got into Sundance and ended up winning a prize at wow. Sundance, and so it was this very incredible moment for me where I felt fully realized in that in that moment, you know, we're, we're a process. So I can't say that you're always losing and finding yourself, but that was a moment where I felt very much like I had graduated and I felt sort of like it was this perfect combination of all of the things that, that were me. The fact that I wanted to play characters and seem completely different. And there was, oh, and Don John also, I think was at the same time. So there was, there was these sort of four pieces of me, these three different characters that I was playing, plus the role of writer director that were all happening at the same time. And they all contradicted each other. And all of everything was so different that a lot of the time people didn't even know it was me and right. all three. And that really made it's like, me excited. Yeah, it's like the ultimate compliment. Um, now between that period and now with room, there's been a couple of big studio movies that were maybe brought you to the attention of a larger number of people than those movies. There was The Gambler with Mr. Wahlberg mm-hmm. and most recently Trainwreck with uh, somebody who everybody's talking about this weekend with her special. Apollo special. Yes, yeah. uh, Amy Schumer. Um, what is, what's your feeling of comfort or level of comfort going, you know, from a short-term 12, like, bare-bones, small project to a massive thing like The Gambler or, or you know, maybe somewhere in between with Trainwreck? Um you feel just as at home on, on a massive movie? I do because it took so long for me to hit the point where I was in a bigger budget that I was always cast then as a creative force. So I've had the same level of, I guess, respect mm-hmm. is maybe the word that comes to mind, that it wasn't like I was eaten alive by some giant machine, that I was really brought in to be an expert on a character and to craft something. So... There's there's such an upside to both, I think, and I feel like I'll spend the rest of my life bouncing between all sorts of different things because it really depends on – you need that balance. It's like the difference between like when you want to go get away for the weekend and sometimes you really want to just camp and look out at the stars and be in a tent or maybe you want to stay at the Four Seasons. <laughs> so – having both is sort of necessary I think and they inform one another Um, and I've enjoyed the fact that I get to I get to be in these bigger movies that if done correctly it's telling these same sort of heartfelt meaningful stories and taking the audience on a journey in the same way a short term 12 Mm -hmm. is but it's in a more accessible way right well let's talk about Realm of course Uh, now this is a movie just I saw it at Telluride. I went in. I had no idea what it was about. I, you know, it seemed, the trailer was very intriguing, but it was not explicit about what you're going to be dealing with. Um, go in there, people. I've never heard so many sniffling sniffles and things throughout a movie. Uh, great reception there. It goes to Toronto, wins the Audience Award. Now opening uh, and you know getting the same kind of very impassioned feedback. And so it's not a movie that you go to uh, where you come out and you have like. 
oh, that was good or something. You know, you get very, <laughs> you get very strong reactions. I've been wondering about that. If there's somebody who's walked out of it going, you know, it just, it doesn't make me feel anything. Right, right. Well, I <laughs> it think you need so to like that it's not check your pulse if that's your reaction. <laughs> but um, so the the root of it is a book by Emma Donahue from 2010. Lenny Abramson, who people might know from Frank, uh, got involved um, as a director and. When along the line did you first hear about this, and you know what appealed to you about it? Well, I'd, I was given the book. I, I think it's probably about a year before I had been given a formal script. Mm-hmm. I think somewhere around there, um, and I absolutely loved the book. It demolished me, and it really suspended my disbelief. I'm a big reader. I'm constantly reading, and so. For a book to really hold me in that way, where it had been a long time since there was a book that I could not put down until I finished it, and during the whole escape sequence, I really thought for sure that they were not going to be okay, even though it didn't make any sense because I was holding a physical copy, and obviously <laughs> half of the book was still in my right hand, but I just couldn't right. I couldn't see the book. I just saw what was happening. Um, but Ma is not a full complicated human being in the book that's what sort of works so well about it is it's told from the five-year-old's perspective and his ma is like a god she is everything and she is perfect and she and you hardly ever even hear anything about her the way she looks you have no sense of her whatsoever and i knew that emma did that on purpose mm-hmm. so that we made her whatever mother right. we wanted and so to be that to when it came time when there was a script and I met with Lenny. In my mind, it was like to assume that I could be the mother that everybody had envisioned just seemed impossible. Um, But I knew that there was so much about this story that I wanted to explore, and I just wanted to have the chance to at least have a conversation about it, just even from one book lover to another, saying, gosh, can you believe all of this and all of this richness that's in such a simple story? And Lenny and I met for, it was supposed to be like a short 30-minute coffee, and instead, that's the director of the movie, Mm -hmm. and instead it was like four hours of just talking about everything, talking about the book, talking about mythology, talking about, he was talking about his kids, I was talking about some of my growing up years and um, how I felt like they related to who Ma was before, and we were talking about scenes that we never even thought would be necessarily in the movie but things that we thought were happening in between moments in time that you would see mm-hmm. and there was it was just the beginning of something really great cuz this was this was not even the actual audition this was just like a meeting yeah this i think Lenny's process was that he was just going to meet with a bunch of people for for coffee cuz you know you don't want to spend a ton of time and waste a lot of people's time auditioning if it's if they're not right if they don't get what mm-hmm. the heart of it is um, so I think he had initial conversations with a bunch of people and then asked a handful to come in and read. And I was one of them. And I was really relieved that he asked me to read because I really felt strongly that I knew how to play it. But I didn't know for sure. And it was so, I cared so much about the story, about the material, about who Ma was that I didn't want to assume that I knew and I didn't want to jump into this project with any bit of doubt. So the audition became this great way for Lenny and I to see if we worked well together, if we could speak the same language, because when you're talking about a scene, you're only really talking in metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's And so the words and the adjectives that you use, the color choices that you use when it comes to explaining the texture of a scene, you could be the best director in the world, but if we don't use the same adjectives or think of them in the same way it's like you're speaking two different languages so um it became the beginning of something really exciting and I remembered just feeling very clear the whole time we did it and all of the emotion just came from really easy and it's a great sign when that happens because it means that the script is working and that it's resonating with me and that everything's sort of very easily going in this great creative direction and remember calling my agent and manager afterwards they wanted to know how it went and I was oh yeah I think it went really good and yeah I'm really happy and they're like it sounds like you're in a hot tub right now how is that possible <laughs> but I felt like kind of like how we were what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation that 
if it was meant to be that it would be mm-hmm. and i cared so much about it that it didn't have to be me was lenny playing the part of of jack the son or who was no it was a casting director it was really? like a it was a woman yeah and which which scenes did you audition there when, was, when that eventually came, because I understand there was this initial meeting. So yeah, then. yeah. The audition scenes were, it was a couple in room. So I think it was like a, the very first scene of his fifth birthday and the unlo- what we call the unlying scene when I'm trying to explain to him what the world is. Mm-hmm. And a couple other little tiny bits, like a bit of me explaining what the TV is. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of strung a couple of scenes together to make sort of one long one. Mm-hmm. And then the interview scene. Wow, great. And now so apparently, like, from what I've heard, all the top young actresses within your age bracket were interested, you know, interested in this. And I don't know how far it went with any of them, but did you ever get from Lenny what it was that made him decide to to go with you in the end, aside from obviously just being very good, but, you know, did you hear from him? Um, I've heard about it more now. I mean, you never talk about it at the time <laughs> at because the time. it's like if a friend were to be like, oh, I, you always do this thing, and then you never want to do it again. <laughs> so whatever it was initially that worked, he was never going to tell me because I was going to be aware of it. <laughs> um, but now that we've done Q&As and things, he's awkwardly had to explain himself <laughs> with me sitting next to him. Right. And... I think I think that part of it, a huge part of it, was warmth. And he knew that it needed to be somebody that was going to be available to this kid the whole time. And that it wasn't going to be someone who was going to have to, you know, run to her trailer in between. And that I was going to create a real connection with this boy and be there for him when the cameras weren't rolling. Um, and very committed. There's a selflessness that comes with playing Ma, not just on screen, but it it goes over into the actual process where there was no room for me to be precious about my performance at Mm -hmm. all because the entire day, for the most part, was taken up with Jacob, um, his time restraint, and he can't work. Co-star Jacob Tremblay, who was eight at the time? He was seven and turned eight. Seven, wow. Seven turned eight while we were shooting. So because he can only work a handful of hours... There's a t- real, the clock is ticking, and but you have to make it seem like it's not for him, that there's no pressure whatsoever. And there's a lot of technical aspects to making a movie that an eight-year-old just cannot understand. And so I became the one in charge of that very, very quickly right off the bat. It was like obvious. I just took the reins mm-hmm. on that one where I was like, I'm the one closest to him. Mm-hmm. I'm the one making eye contact with him for eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the room's too small to have people constantly coming in mm-hmm. and out and fixing his clothes and touching the hair and reminding him of the note of, you know, pick up the glass on this line mm-hmm. with this hand. And so instead, all of the notes could sort of go to Lenny first. He would filter them out and tell them to me. Mm-hmm. And then I could have this, hold this eye contact with Jacob and kind of redirect. Okay, no, actually, we're going to try that again. But remember, you're going to pick up the glass mm-hmm. on that line and don't touch your wig and let me fix your hair and... You know, I could do all of these things for him to sort of finesse him into a cohesive performance. Well, on, I mean, on the basis of Short Term 12 alone, where you were so great with the with the younger kids, I would have, to me, that's reason enough to have, have you know, cast you for this. It's it's obviously, a, and I don't know if that was even, I don't know if he'd seen Short Term 12, but it seems like. He had. Yeah. I mean, did he, did he ever I think that was a huge that? part of it. Yeah, yeah. He actually just met Dustin. Oh, really? Like an hour ago and it made my <laughs> mind explode a little bit. Yeah. The two of them were yeah. talking about directing kids mm-hmm. and they were like, we should go grab a coffee and talk about it. I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, but I think that was a huge piece of it. Mm-hmm. I don't even know. I mean. I feel like I wasn't even part of the initial casting conversation for Ma, but like the casting assistant or there was somebody who was not necessarily like the head of something had seen Short Term 12 mm-hmm. and just was like, said to Lenny, you should watch this movie. I think this girl should be in the mix for it. <laughs> and whoever that, that person it. was, thank you. <laughs> um, now, the thing that I also wonder when you see the chemistry that you do have and that you developed with with Jake, uh, you know, did they just take a gamble on that or, or did you and he have like, 
chemistry tests or anything to make sure that this was going to work because if it didn't, you have no movie. We didn't have a chemistry test. I didn't even see an audition tape or anything. I kind of thought that Lenny would want my opinion Mm -hmm. or have me meet with him first, but he didn't. And uh, I just was one day I got an email with a cute little picture of that face that I love so much (laughs) being like, this is your boy. Mm -hmm. And I remember just like dying inside (laughs) mixture of like, oh, there he is. There's our Jack. And also, what if he doesn't like me? Mm-hmm. As simple as that. Mm-hmm. And he's he is seven when I first met him, so he doesn't have to like me. And that was something that we really had to be come to terms with. Um, that we would just have to figure out how to make this movie, no matter what. But we really lucked out that Jacob and I connected very quickly. And, and it then was over like Star Wars and things yeah, I've heard. Yeah. That, was Star that really Wars and the... Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Our first conversation was about Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. He was super shy and we were at a pizza parlor and he was playing with his little Star Wars Lego people and he was being sort of like quiet. And so I asked him about Star Wars and started talking with him about that and that really got him animated and opening up. And once he realized that I could talk about that and that I knew how to play with Lego and that I knew the Ninja Turtles. It was like, oh, man, why well, have this Ninja Turtle Lego set? And there was his siblings. He has two sisters. They weren't around. There's no kids his age. And so right. it was like, oh, there's somebody who knows some of the same stuff and will play with me. Right. You should come over. And <laughs> so I came over and we played Lego and we started chatting and took Getting it from there. a beautiful friendship, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, now, for your own preparation, I understand you really did uh, some – kind of extensive things that uh, are extensively committed to um, kind of things to get your own mindset right for somebody who's going to be um, in a room for years uh, with uh, under these these circumstances. So maybe you can just share. I, I think it shows unbelievable commitment on your part, the, the physical things, the psychological things that you put yourself through. Well, I had – this was the first time that I – in my career where I had time to prepare. I know it seems crazy, but (laughs) it really was. Every other job, it's like an independent film where you're like short-term 12. I think I was cast like three weeks or something before we started shooting. So I didn't have time um, to really explore every avenue possible. And this I had for room, I think I had like seven months before we started, before I went to Toronto and then another month there with Jacob where we could rehearse and do more um so during that time I decided not to take any other work and just focus on really creating her mm-hmm. so um I first started with talking with the trauma specialists about how the brain would organize this type of trauma the sexual abuse and being in a space for seven years I couldn't wrap my brain around it I could really get my brain wrapped around like a week in But uh, seven years was really hard for me to understand. And so I spent a lot of time talking um, with this incredible guy, Dr. Briere, who I love. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, man. It was so amazing that he was there. Mm. It felt very emotional. Mm. He's a huge, he was the person I was most nervous about seeing the movie, but he liked it. (laughs) So that was good. He got the thumbs up. Yeah. Um, Because he's coming from the technical world. And so I really wanted to please him in how it was depicted. Um, and then I started, I spoke with doctors and nutritionists about how the brain and the body would react to lack of vitamin D and lack of nutrition and what the skin and the hair and the nails and the eyes and the teeth, what would, how those would deteriorate and in what, what way, um, and then started mirroring it a little bit, um, had to stay out of the sun for many months, Um, went on this very rigid, small, restrictive diet of only Mm -hmm. a few things um, and started working out a lot, partially to gain muscle because I imagined that it's her only defense, is her her body, her physical strength. And I thought it'd be something too that, although everything else about her looks sort of run down, that if there was a little bit of muscle or something on her, it would immediately give you the sense that this was someone who hadn't given up, Mm -hmm. that wasn't wasting away and she's also gone through a pregnancy and is constantly carrying a kid and I knew from friends and my mom you get arm you get real arms Uh when you're carrying a baby all the time um and 
And I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, there's so much. Well, just to... What remind me of what well, else I, I did? Mean, well, one, I mean, kind of basically isolating yourself, right, from other oh, people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a big thing. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> it was not so bad. I mean, that came from me researching. I started going down the path of learning more about people's experience in silent retreats mm-hmm. where you don't make eye contact, you don't speak to anybody. Uh, like because shamanic stuff, like, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like meditation mm-hmm. almost, like a meditation retreat mm-hmm. um, where you have to get really close to the voices inside your head and get to know them really well and you, so there's no way to run away from them. And I, I found it to be such an interesting dichotomy the more I thought about it that Ma is trapped in room we think from like 17 to 19, and that's bef- alone. Mm-hmm. That's before she has her son. So those ages to me were the are the formative years of running away. That's the time where you just want to do what you want to do, and you don't want to listen to your parents. You can't wait to move out, you're, or you are because you're going to college, or you're, you know, doing whatever, getting your first apartment. It's all about getting away. And I found it so interesting that it was the opposite for her, that those became the two years where she had to really sit with herself. Mm-hmm. And it was a time for her to reflect on her life or to magnify it and to create some glorious future or reality that she couldn't reach um, or dismiss it all. And so I wanted to know for myself what came up for me. And I, I really found it fascinating. I meditate twice a day, so it wasn't like a huge leap mm-hmm. for me and mm-hmm. I didn't have social media at the time or anything so I don't have phone signal so it wasn't that I think to the outside world people are like whoa how'd you do it but to me <laughs> I was like man I was like 50% there already right, so right. it wasn't it wasn't crazy to me and I really I really got to a place where I she was so clear to me after that month so vivid I don't think I could have played her without doing that wow well, with our with our remaining few minutes here, I just wanted to cover a few logistical questions that people may have. You know, movies for people who don't know are not usually shot in sequence for budgetary reasons. But in this case, with a young child actor and with the physical changes and th- psychological things that your characters would be going through, um, were they able to make that possible to do it kind of in sequence? Yeah, for the most part. That's I right. mean, at least all of Room was shot in order, um, which was fantastic. And you could really feel, even from the crew of there being so many of us in such a small space, this this very palpable energy of get us out of here, (laughs) which fueled so much of that that escape sequence. Mm -hmm. I remember during Short Term 12, when it hit the point where I like smash a car, Mm -hmm. I felt like I was doing it for everybody. (laughs) And the escape sequence was another moment like that where you feel like you're doing it for everybody. (laughs) Uh, And then the stuff outside of room for the most part was shot in sequence. There was a couple things that logistically we had to do out of order, but for the most part it was, it was all done in order so that it could all inform itself. Another technical kind of question, but room itself, you know, it's very small, obviously, but for a set where you've got cameras, you've got people, you've got equipment, all of this, uh, how, how was that achieved? It's almost the same size as in the book. In the book, it's 11 by 11, and ours was 11 by 16. Uh, that four feet, I think, was supposed to help us with the, the six to eight other people that were <laughs> in room. Uh, it still made it a very, very tight squeeze, but it it was very interesting because there was definitely an intimacy to that, to it being just us in this small space, and it really pared down who could be there, mm-hmm. who could actually be in the space. Um, you had to be very particular about what energy was in that space, and it was really just me and Jacob for most of it. So there was this very, there was this simplicity to it that then once we were outside, we were dealing with so many other factors, light, weather. Um, other actors it wasn't just this sort of womb-like place anymore Mm -hmm. Um, last two things first of all with uh with room um i think the assumption might be that when you put an actor in a small space that that is going to be about as as um that would be the most challenging thing in in this movie but i get the sense that when the story expands to the real world and it's less a physical consideration more you know you've got a 
play this these people that are having to recover from their uh, horrendous experience, um, the stuff that we see in the movie here with you and Joan Allen and William H. Macy and all of that, um, I could see that being just as hard. And I wonder from your point of view, did you, as you look back on it, which was, you know, how do they compare in terms of demanding, being demanding? Out, outside of room was way harder. Really? Way, way, way harder. But I knew that. I knew that because, and it was part of the plan, because in talking with the trauma specialist, he explained that the trauma that Ma is going through in room is cannot be dealt with in room. Your brain shuts it off. It, it has to protect itself. She would not be able to survive or create the life for herself and for Jack that you see in the movie if our brain's reaction to trauma was, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You, you can't. It just, it kind of becomes numb and, dis, and, and has this disassociation from mm-hmm. it. And you can sort of separate from your body. And I imagine that she was sort of this floating spirit next to her body for most of the time you're in room. That she has to because there's just too much pain in her body for her to really be connected to it. So I knew that once she was home and was in a place where survival was not on the forefront of her mind, where she didn't have to worry about this monster invading this space and everything was safe and she didn't have to worry about where she was going to get her next meal, that then the brain brings all this stuff up to the surface. And so that was going to be when the emotions really went wild Mm -hmm. for Ma. And it was going to be this emotional marathon of can, can my body keep it together? Can it, can it, can it hold on to and continue to be the vessel for this outpour? That was the remainder of, I think, six weeks. Well, as a final question, I've got to ask you, um, as this movie begins to be seen by more and more people, but you've had a few months of getting feedback. Um, and as you prepare to go off to um, be what I've heard you refer to as Blockbuster Brie with Kong Skull Island. Yeah, check uh, me out, the new action figure, the Blockbuster action, Brie. <laughs> yeah, just a matter of time. Uh, so as Collect at, them all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people will. Um, at, this, at this kind of particular juncture, mid-October 2015, um, processing all the stuff, the good stuff from room, getting ready to kind of enter a different phase of your career, engaging with people on social media, which you do so nicely. And I think it's a kind of the, the new way that um, your generation of actors, a different relationship than others have had with, with their fans. Where is, where is your mindset right now? How do you feel? Um, and, uh, and what's your outlook? Ooh, this is so interesting. <laughs> I can't wait to look to listen to this 10 years from now you're so smart um it's a very interesting period of time because it's absolutely exhausting to go on this journey where you're promoting a movie and the movie's working and people want to talk about it and it demands a lot of time so it's equal parts absolutely the most exciting time and the most exhausted I've ever felt and very little time to myself Mm. and it's just giving 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 and um, I've realized from talking with my friends who have newborns that it's the same. <laughs> so that's what right. it feels like. But when I think about it that way, that this is just like this fresh little newborn, my career is a fresh little newborn that I'm like nurturing, <laughs> it feels lovely. Right. And um, I remember when Short Term 12 was doing quite well, I had the opportunity to have to share breakfast with Annette Benning, and she said to me, enjoy this because it may never happen again. (laughs) And I think about that all the time and remembering that this is still really just for me. I have to see it as an act of service because then otherwise it's just, it's just kind of gross. I think it's very bizarre to be like, why would I want my face on the cover of anything (laughs) for me? It's not for me. It's for the sake of storytelling, Mm -hmm. for the sake of the myth, for the sake of these, this ritual of, really respecting the people who come into the theater and take these you know their twenty dollars and two hours of their time very seriously and what is that story that we're taking them on what is that journey that I'm pulling them into and where am I dropping them off in the end when the lights come up and I feel so inspired by that and I feel so inspired by the fact that a movie like Room can connect with people in such a visceral way that I find it inspiring that the thing that I've always believed and the thing that I've been working for since I was based probably since I was six years mm-hmm. old 
exists and that there's a horizon to that is um, very powerful to feel in a human body. Well, it's been it's been and will continue to be so exciting to just watch this all evolve for you. And um, can't thank you enough for fitting this in at a time when I'm sure you would rather be taking a nap. So no, I appreciate it. No, this was cool. I got to go down memory lane. It's it is really a time where you're kind of at the top of one mountain getting to look out at it. And a lot of the time you're sort of like, oh, I got to the top, looked at it, took the photo, I can look at it later. But this was an awesome opportunity for really take a breath. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.